1: wherever you sell with shopify you'll harness the same intuitive features trusted apps and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands sign up today for your one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com tech all lowercase that's shopify.com tech
0: introducing wondersuite from bluehost.com the tool that makes wordpress wonderful for everyone
2: Hey, look at this, Molly. Solar power is in. I mean, just panel after panel after panel.
3: Yeah, right across that rooftop there.
2: Yeah, but of course, in a way, these solar panels are just replacing one kind of solar energy with another kind. Well, how so? Well, nearly every scheme we use to get energy, whether it's to power our homes our vehicles even our factories it all comes down to solar energy
3: even without solar panels here
2: certainly everything you burn is energy that originates with the sun what do you burn molly books books okay books where where do those come from
3: (laughs) i guess trees
2: all right and they get their energy from the sun right photosynthesis trees turning sunlight into cellulose Trees run on sunlight. What else do you burn?
3: Rubber? No. Uh, natural gas.
2: Ah, uh, yeah. Methane and a bit of ethane. Well, that's from decayed organic matter, you know, plants, and they get their energy from. I know this one, the sun, the sun. Right, correcto solo. And then there's coal. That's an obvious one, not, not to mention oil.
3: <laughs> so it sounds like solar panels are just eliminating the middle man, or the middle tree, as it were, and capturing this energy directly.
2: Right, Then they do that by kicking electrons in the panels into movement and moving electrons are what we call an electric current, and voila, usable energy. So, you see, not only does the sun have soul, you've got soul on Are We Alone? I'm Seth Shostak.
3: And I'm Molly Bentley. And as impressive as the sun is... And
2: it is a shining example of impressive.
3: (laughs) That's right. There's actually a lot we don't know about the star of our solar system. That's why NASA is planning a new mission to the sun. And this is one mission, I bet, where no one's going to make a case to go along for the ride. It's definitely unmanned and unwomaned.
2: Well, for the first time, we'll fly into the sun's corona. It's very high, very thin, and very, very hot. Upper atmosphere, millions of degrees, Molly. The mission is called the Solar Probe Plus, and it hopes to finally understand how the sun's corona is heated and how the solar wind, which is a big storm of atomic particles that's somehow thrown off the sun, how that arises. The mission is scheduled to launch in 2018, but scientists are excited about it now. After all, any NASA launch takes years of planning.
4: I'm Stuart Bale, and I'm a professor in the physics department at UC Berkeley, and I'm the director of the Berkeley Space Sciences Laboratory.
2: Stuart, Solar Probe Plus. NASA's planning to send a spacecraft careening into the sun. Is this true?
4: It's true. It's very exciting. It's a long-stated goal of American space science.
2: Well, I mean, is it really going to go into the sun? I mean, how close will it get?
4: The closest approach, the perihelion, will be about 8.5 solar radii, above the surface of the sun, the the photosphere.
2: Uh, Maybe I've got this wrong, but that strikes me as about 4 million miles. Is that about it? That's about right. Okay, well, uh, obviously the question I'm sure you get at cocktail parties all the time is, isn't this spacecraft going to become vaporware, getting that close to the sun?
4: Yeah, it it requires really heroic thermal engineering effort uh, on the part of the spacecraft people. The front surface of the spacecraft is a carbon-carbon heat shield, that rises to something like 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit, but the back of it is remarkably cool. Uh, we have to use heaters to keep our instruments warm.
2: Stuart, we've been studying the sun in a serious way ever since the invention of the telescope. We've already put space robes in orbit around the sun, so what's the deal here? Why do we need to get this close?
4: Well, the sun has a hot atmosphere that we call the solar wind or the corona, uh, which is a, essentially an evaporating atmosphere that rises to millions of degrees of, uh, of temperature, uh, and we need to find out what the energy source of that heating is. And it's a kind of dark energy. It's a kind of invisible energy that you can't see from, from Earth. So we have to get up there in situ and, and measure the essentially the magnetic fields and electric fields in that region.
2: Well, let me see if I understand the problem here. You've mentioned the corona. Now, that's the crown of hot gas that surrounds the sun. And if I remember my freshman astronomy, well, it's uh, got a temperature of millions of degrees, even though the surface of the sun is only, what, a few thousands of degrees. So... I guess the question is here how the corona gets so hot. I mean, if I've got a radiator in the corner of the room here, and it's at 150 degrees, the air next to it isn't at a few thousand degrees.
4: That's exactly right. That's that's exactly the question. And what we do know, or what we think we know, is that there's a lot of energy density in the magnetic fields in the corona. And so we suspect that those magnetic fields are the ultimate source of that of that heat. Uh, and What we want to do is get up there and find out exactly how that magnetic field energy is converted into heat.
2: Okay, so, so the, the trick is that the sun makes some magnetic fields, we know that, we see those, and that somehow those magnetic fields convert their energy into hot gas, is that the deal?
4: That's right, they they convert their energy into heat, so they heat the cooler gas that's there in some probably some turbulent way, it's probably a process that involves waves and turbulence.
2: Maybe you could describe for me the scenario of what actually happens as it gets within, you know, a few million miles of the sun, I mean, wh- what happens?
4: Well... <laughs> we, we don't know. So what happens is that the spacecraft has some solar panels that generate electricity for the experiments. As it gets in closer to the sun, those solar panels tuck back behind the spacecraft and leave only a little sliver exposed to sunlight at the ends. The spacecraft stays pointed at the sun the entire time, so that heat shield is the only thing that the sun sees. And then it zooms through the perihelion path in really just a few days. So the primary scientific mission is within, you know, let's say a week of the closest
2: approach. Well, finally, Stuart, some people might reasonably ask, okay, so there's some mystery about the heating of the solar corona, but, you know, compared to things like dark energy or maybe string theory, this might not be one of nature's deepest secrets. What makes you enthusiastic about this mission?
4: Well, I would actually, I would disagree. I think that the entire field of astrophysics is awakening to the fact that magnetic fields and the generation of magnetic fields in astrophysics are critical. I mean, we now know that for a black hole to accrete matter, for a black hole to shine uh, and emit energetic radiation really requires a magnetic field. And we don't know how those magnetic fields arise. And the solar corona is really the perfect place to study this process.
2: All right. Well, Stuart Bale, thank you so much for talking to us about this upcoming trip to the sun.
3: Okay, Seth, so the sun has a lot of power, and some of that is captured in the solar panels that we saw outside.
2: Yeah, uh, even my watch here, Molly, has a little solar cell in it, so it will recharge occasionally and keep running as long as I go outside occasionally.
3: Right, so solar energy isn't really about generating nuclear energy.
2: No, it's just a scheme for collecting that energy as produced by the sun.
3: Well, if we're talking about energy produced by the sun, we're really talking about nuclear energy then. I mean, if you go right to the source of what's being produced, that's what's being produced there.
2: Yeah, and it's called nuclear energy because all the action is happening right in the center of the nucleus of the atom.
3: Where the protons and neutrons are all stuck together.
2: Yeah, and there's all this stuff kind of glued together in there. And that's one heck of a glue, Molly, because those protons, which, after all, are all positively charged, they don't really want to hang out next to one another, like charges repel, you remember. So there's a lot of energy associated with gluing those nuclear particles together.
3: And breaking that energy storehouse creates a huge release of energy.
2: Right. And that was one of the main goals of atomic research of the 1930s and 40s. They eventually were able to get that energy out, but the first applications tended to be bombs, And the first explosion of an atomic weapon was the Trinity test in July 1945.
3: Now, while freeing energy from atomic nuclei was a scientist's job, the task of capturing the images of the blasts were left to photographers, cameramen who recorded the tests and risked their lives doing so. Now photographer Peter Coran has captured that history. How to Photograph an Atomic Bomb is his historical account, and it's mainly photos of recording nuclear explosions that are as bright as the sun.
2: Well, how do you get that on film? As Peter Coran explains, it required the invention of new cameras, the creation of new film stock, even Hollywood got involved. And he knows something about Hollywood. A photographer and a chronicler of films on the atomic age, documentaries weren't Peter Coran's first foray into movies. That's right. While just a teenager, Peter Curran was an animator on the science fiction film that changed how special effects were done, Star Wars. Today, he focuses on preserving a history he hopes is never captured on film again.
3: Peter, you began as an animator for Star Wars when you were 17 years old. You since made five films about nuclear weapons and created a book about how to photograph an atomic bomb. How did you get involved in documenting nuclear weapons testing?
5: Well, I've always been interested in photography. I started my interest in photography when I was about seven years old. And I would process film, print film, shoot film. I always had an interest in that. Somewhere where I was about 15 years old, I visited Japan on a YMCA program tour. And we stopped in Hiroshima on August 6th and basically visited the Hiroshima Peace Museum and looked at all of the artifacts that were left over from the uh, atomic bombing of Hiroshima. And it left an effect on me, a profound effect.
3: Can you describe more what the impression was? Because it's hard for a Mm 15-year-old to understand the weight of that history and what had occurred.
5: Well, up until the time that we visited Hiroshima, we were being taken on a tour by some Japanese people that were showing us around. And you could even feel going into Hiroshima. It was very hot and sticky August afternoon. You could even feel the weight of being an American in Hiroshima on the uh, anniversary of the bombing. And what actually had happened to me was I got kind of separated from the group and wound up in this theater where they were showing a movie about Hiroshima. And turns out that room was packed, and I was really the only American in the room <laughs> and watching you know, watching this documentary on the bombing and aftermath of Hiroshima. And I remember standing there sweating profusely and that kind of drove home what the atomic bomb was all about, because at that point, I felt alone.
3: That experience stayed with you enough that years later, you turned to making films about the atomic age. And now this book, How to Photograph an Atomic Bomb, why create this book specifically?
5: Well, one of the things is knowing that you know this occupied a, a small part of our history, 1945 through about 1963 under above ground tests being done and i think one of the things that started me on this was the fact that a lot of this film is getting older a lot of this film is degrading and i think one of the things that i had wanted to do was to try to not only preserve them but show them in a new light you know try to clean them up use restoration techniques to bring images back to the way they were back in the 50s when they were originally photographed kind of create a situation where people can know and experience what this was like without just thinking it's part of a history that, you know, we'll never see again.
3: In your book, you write that the initial flash of light created by a nuclear explosion is more than 10 times the brightness of the sun. Mm -hmm. The attempt to capture something like that on film, had that ever been attempted before the Trinity test in 1945?
5: Well, they couldn't really photograph anything like an atomic bomb, maybe a magnesium flare. One of the people involved in atomic bomb photography was Harold Doc Edgerton and was mm-hmm. known as the person who had invented the gigantic strobe unit, which was used during World War II. So
3: stroboscope? I stroboscope. Think it's stroboscope.
5: Yeah. You know, so you can approximate the kind of situation that you would find in an atomic bomb but atomic bomb characteristics of it are just uh, so extreme to photography that new cameras were invented new film stocks were invented
3: just to capture these images
5: yes just to capture these images yeah
3: And you write that a number of cameras were used all at once. I mean, they tried everything they could. But what I find fascinating is the first test, the Trinity test, and this is the first test of an atomic bomb before it was used in in warfare. A pinhole camera was used. And a pinhole camera is a camera that a child could make. It doesn't have a lens. It just has an aperture. And this is what they used in Trinity.
5: Well, that was one of the things that they used in Trinity. I mean, honestly, they tried all sorts of cameras, whatever was available at the time, pinhole camera, time exposures, they they really didn't know. You You have to understand that up to the Trinity test, the only what you would call the calibration of photography techniques and things was a hundred ton test of dynamite going off, which certainly didn't have the exposure prowess that an atomic bomb has.
3: But I'm interested in how you describe the rudimentary photographs made by this pinhole camera. And well, first, maybe you should describe what an observer would have seen at Trinity when this bomb went off.
5: Well, it was detonated at White Sands Missile Range in southern New Mexico. And the thing that observers saw was an extremely bright flash of light. You know, it's actually hard to explain how it looks in the pinhole camera. For those of you who may not know exactly what a pinhole camera is, it poke a little hole in in the front of the camera, and it's just basically a box that, without lens, creates an image just because of the pinhole that's been made. It was a time exposure image, so pinhole camera kind of displayed the image differently than you're used to seeing it, iconically, as a mushroom cloud. Perhaps because of the time lapse, you see little striations of lines that sort of creep out of the image, almost reaching out like hands or or tentacles.
3: Sort of blurry, like smudges of light.
5: Smudges of light. You have to remember that they used a pinhole camera just because they were trying everything they could think of.
3: The comparisons are remarkable when we see where photography is headed. Well, let's talk about the men, and I believe they were all men that were actually behind the cameras. You described them as being highly skilled but also courageous. Who were the men who were enlisted to photograph the weapons testing?
5: Well, a lot of them had been in World War II as combat cameramen, right alongside the troops taking pictures as they were fighting the war against Germany and Japan. After the war, a lot of them signed up for this Operation Crossroads in 1946 to be able to photograph the atomic bomb, because they were still looking to document history. I want to point out, Operation Crossroads was just one of many operations after World War II, and that was just the... The first one where they detonated two atomic bombs, 1946, one dropped from a plane, one exploded 150 feet under the water, and that was really the first time that after the war that a lot of these photographers signed up for photographing uh, atomic bomb tests. Many of these people after Operation Crossroads came together in a place called Lookout Mountain Laboratories, which was in Hollywood, California.
3: Was that actually a secret film company?
5: It was a secret film lab that was set up by the Department of Defense and the Air Force in the middle of the Hollywood Hills. And sometimes people would be bussed up there And that would be where they worked out of. They would do stage photography there. They did processing. They did the editing of their films. And they would put together programs, mainly for the government, for, like, Congress.
3: Peter, we've been talking about the still photography and the films that were made of atomic weapons testing. And when you hear these films, the narration is really not in keeping with what you're seeing. You you hear this jaunty description that's rather incongruous with what follows, which is an image of a terrifying blast.
5: The scene... Las Vegas, as the caravan sets out for the site of AEC's Nevada Proving Grounds to show the nation the effects of atomic blast on homes, home-type shelters, and automobiles. On each car, instruments to measure excessive temperature increases. Also, a film badge for detection of gamma radiation.
3: So, what did the government want with these films, and who was the intended audience?
5: Well, first off, as far as the narration goes, there were a number of actual Hollywood actors that would do the narrations.
3: They would work with Lookout Mountain they Laboratory would, to they do They would this. work
5: with Lookout Mountain. There were different reasons why they made the films, besides the fact that they could go back and analyze the technical data. What's interesting is that now that a lot of those films that were made for Congress have been declassified and released, you can actually see how the films were tailored differently for Congress as opposed to for the public. For instance, if they wanted to explain to the public that atomic bomb detonations were no big deal, they would use wide shots of the bomb so they looked smaller in the frame. You know, if they wanted to demonstrate the power to Congress, they would use close-ups of things exploding.
3: Now, when you use the word courageous, or maybe I used it to paraphrase the sense that I get from the book, and in describing these men, it makes one wonder whether or not they knew what they were getting into. As they stood there and pointed their cameras at these terrifying explosions, one of the survivors, George Yoshitaki, remembers a test that was going to occur ten thousand feet above his head. So he was asked to go out there and then and film this. And, and what kind of protection does he recall having?
5: I think he was wearing a hat. He was he was wearing a hat for that test from the beginning of the testing. They had a pretty good idea of what kind of dangers there were, although
3: who's the they in that sentence? The uh, photographers or no. the. Well, scientists the, or the government officials? The
5: scientists the, the scientists, the government, had a pretty good idea. They, they knew what radiation was, and they knew what it would do to you. I think the protections kind of built up over a period of time. You know, So over a period of time, I think the government decided that more levels of protection were to be afforded to these people involved.
3: So the trick was, and the art, And the skill that was required was how to capture all of this on film. And there are a number of challenges for a photographer, for a camera, to do this. One is the intensity of the flash itself. Um, And it also changes over time, over the time of the explosion. Could you talk a little bit about what the challenge was in capturing that on film and what sort of technologies were invented?
5: Well, one thing that you have to understand is that from the beginning of the atomic bomb blast to the point where it's basically floating up into the sky as a cloud, you go through a large dynamic range of light, something that you photograph at one point, like say you you set your camera to photograph the initial fireball, which you've got to use like a slow film stock or a very fast shutter speed. You can photograph the fireball in its initial stages, which kind of looks like a, a weird alien creature in some ways. Once you get past that, it's hard to actually keep one type of film stock that can actually photograph that image and at the same time photograph all of the other images that occur through this range of light changes. eg and a company that also worked with the government on atomic bomb photography, had invented a film stock called XR, which used the three different layers of emulsion. And, and different colors. In different, in different colors. The three levels of emulsion were yellow, cyan, and magenta. The cyan layer was recorded as a 0.1 ASA.
3: Now, I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not a professional photographer, or even a very good amateur one, so what does that mean?
5: Well, each different color of the film stock, the yellow, cyan, and magenta layers, would photograph a different intensity of light. And what would happen is when the exposure of the light on one layer of the film went away because it was eventually too dark the fireball was too dark to photograph on the cyan layer then the magenta layer would kick in basically what the film gave you was complete record of the test from the fireball up through what they would call the cloud rise the cloud rise being the last stage of the of the bomb test as it was floating up into the sky
3: But does that mean that the images were also in color and an unnatural color of yellow, magenta, and cyan?
5: Yes, the the images were psychedelic looking. They were not natural colored images, but basically the colors were being used just to separate the different exposure values of the bomb as it was being detonated.
3: Where would the cameramen look when these explosions were going off? Would they look directly at the explosion? Would they look away? Would they turn their backs and just let the cameras do their work if they were set up on timers?
5: Well, yes. The initial blast, you were instructed to basically look away from it. People like observers from Congress or people that are brought out to witness the tests, some of them were given uh, goggles that were pretty dense material so that you could actually look at the test. But if you're a cameraman, I'm going to guess that you probably didn't have the luxury of using the goggles just because once the initial blast was over you you would have to go back to your camera and start photographing what you were seeing. Occasionally they were issued goggles and uh, one of the gentlemen, a man by the name of Doug Wood who I'd talked to during the uh, photography, he had a pair of goggles on and just as the test was going off he was up in a plane directly overhead. I mean personally I don't know if I would... I don't really like to fly and I certainly don't know if I would get in a plane that was going right over ground zero where the bomb was going off but when the bomb went off he grabbed his goggles and pulled them down but the plastic material uh, fell out of it so he he had to throw his hand across his his eyes to protect his eyes from the blast and he could see the all of the bones and everything in his in his hand because the blast you know was basically so bright that you would see it through your hand
3: that's remarkable not only the intensity of the flash had to be reckoned with, but the speed at which all of this happens. And was it true that there was a, um, a coordination between, say, ships and airplanes and, and people on land, and you can explain how this works, in order to get the timing down, that some of this was automatically timed so there nope. would be a relay. A relay would be in process so that the camera would know when to start shooting.
5: The majority of the technical photography as well as what was called the timing and firing was handled by a company called E. G. G., g which was headed by a man named Harold Edgerton, also known as Doc Edgerton. You're probably familiar with his work where he would shoot pictures of bullets going through apples and bullets going through light bulbs and bullets going through soap bubbles. and And his company was originally brought in to do what was called the technical photography. The company I was talking about, Lookout Mountain Laboratory, they were basically there to photograph the documentary aspects of the test, but EG&G was there to photograph the technical aspects of the test. And because they had so many cameras hooked up to photograph these tests, some cameras just shooting a millionth of a second at the first millionth of a second of detonation, They were also in charge of all of the circuitry that was brought together to set off the bomb in the first place. Often when you heard the countdown, where they were counting down from 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, that was generally a person who worked for EG&G in the um, control room.
3: And they developed a kind of camera, maybe approach of photography called RAPATRONIC.
5: Yeah, the RAPATRONIC camera was developed at EG&G by a person named Charlie Wyckoff who had been basically the techie for EG&G. And he, along with EG&G, developed the RAPATRONIC camera, which would photograph the bomb within a millionth of a second.
3: Well, there's this picture here in your book that we're looking at. Fireball photography is how I put it. Maybe that's even what the caption is. Can you just describe what we're seeing there? And this was taken with this RAPATRONIC camera. Mm
5: -hmm. The first thing that I think people should understand is that when you're photographing an image at a millionth of a second, you can't actually use a mechanical shutter. Like in cameras that you used to photograph actual film in, there would be a mechanical shutter that would sweep across the film plane or just behind the lens and let the exposure come in but at a millionth of a second you could not create a physical shutter that was fast enough to be able to let in just that amount of light and what they had to do was use like a piece of polarized glass that was affected by a capacitor and a capacitor is something that holds a charge and you can set that charge and let it go through the glass and it polarizes the glass in a millionth of a second to be able to let just that small amount of light in at the beginning of the explosion. I mean, basically what you're looking at is something that's a very otherworldly image. It has layers, it probably...
3: It's a fireball.
5: It's a fireball. It looks like a piece of dust photographed with a really high-powered microscope. It has little spikes, what they call spikes, coming off of it. It's an image that you can't really describe very well because it's just strange looking.
3: Well, strange was the word that was just coming to my mind because it has a strange beauty, an eerie beauty, and it's not until you realize what it is you're looking at that then sort of the horror comes in at what you're looking at as well. Do you feel that way about some of this photography where it's it's terrifying? On the other hand, some of them are really beautiful. So you have this contradiction.
5: Yeah, and actually that contradiction was something that I had played up when I made my first documentary, Trinity and Beyond, which was showing you something that is so destructive, but something that, you know, you can step back and say, wow, this is really beautiful, too. It's a a total contradiction.
3: Have you ever had astronomers compare the explosion of a nuclear bomb to a supernova or a star exploding? Some of the still photography reminds me of that.
5: You know, it's funny you should mention that. The person I was talking about, Charlie Wyckoff, this is one of the reasons I like to document this information, is because... People see things that they only keep in the back of their mind. And, you know, when that person passes away, the information that's there is gone. And I remember having a conversation with Charlie Wyckoff at one point. He said, you know, I, I look at some of these initial tests and I think this is what the beginning of the universe was like. And he never really elaborated on it, but you can almost see it when, like, the very beginning of a hydrogen bomb going off. There's like this initial pulse of energy. And then it dies down, but then it starts to expand. And as it's expanding, it's creating almost like stars that are forming on the outside of the explosion. And it starts heating up some more. And I believe that's probably where he was going with that.
3: Peter, you've written this book to be a history book, and in some ways the ultimate history book, because it's history that you said you never want to see repeated. Do you think it will be consigned to history, those those photographs, and that this planet will never see them again, those explosions?
5: You have to understand that in 1963, the, the Limited Test Ban Treaty, which basically stopped all above-ground tests, at least the United States and the Soviet Union, was endorsed at that time by 100 countries, which... I think at the time was pretty close to most of them. And I think nowadays, I don't think anyone's talking about exploding atomic bombs or nuclear weapons above ground. If anything, even like North Korea, that is basically going off and thumbing their nose at everybody, is still just doing an underground test. I think that these kind of tests, above ground tests, are probably just a part of history now.
3: Peter Coran, thank you very much for talking with us.
5: Thank you.
2: Peter Curran is a filmmaker. Trinity and Beyond is just one of his documentaries about the atomic age. He is the author of How to Photograph an Atomic Bomb. Some of the more spectacular images from Peter's book can be found on our blog, Are We a Blog? Peter's descriptions of these images are featured as bonus content as part of the Are We Alone app.
3: Next, why the most common stars in our solar system are not powered by nuclear reactions, and a tour of the National Laboratory where scientists are attempting to recreate the workings of the sun here on Earth. You're listening to You've Got Soul on Are We Alone?
1: With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology, and it provides in depth coverage on current news and discoveries
3: Seth, we've been talking about nuclear fission, which is what happens in an atomic bomb. Um, There's also fusion, which is what happens in a hydrogen bomb. And one of those is the process that causes the stars to shine, and that's fusion. So somewhere in the center of our sun is a giant H-bomb, one that has been exploding continuously for more than 4 billion years.
2: Right. But you might ask... Do all stars shine thanks to nuclear reactions thanks to fusion power?
3: Okay. Do all stars shine thanks to nuclear reactions thanks to fusion power?
2: Well, the answer is surprising. Not all. Maybe not even the majority. Okay, there's the sun, and all the other stars you see with your eyes at night, they shine because they're fusing lighter things to heavier things. But smaller stars, stellar runts, Well, they just don't make the grade.
3: Well, in what sense? Don't they have enough fuel to have those internal nuclear reactions? It's not
2: really the lack of
3: fuel. They've got plenty
2: of hydrogen. It's just that being so small, they can't crush their innards as much. They can't raise their central regions to tens of millions of degrees. And if you don't do that, well, no fusion.
3: I've had some belts which have crushed my innards a lot. (laughs) Okay, so anyway, so these small stars are completely dark. Well, not quite. These smaller stars collapse
2: under their own weight, rather slowly, it can take billions of years, but that collapse releases energy, just like dropping a brick off a roof. It releases energy as it falls toward the uh, toward the ground. For a long time we've known about some of these runts, small stars that just barely glow. They're called brown dwarfs, but now NASA's orbiting wide-field infrared survey explorer telescope the acronym is WISE, which is a lot easier to say, has found
3: a type of star even smaller than brown dwarfs. And you met one of these WISE guys, Davy Kirkpatrick. He's an astronomer at the California Institute of Technology.
2: Davy, these very small stars have been billed as green stars. Uh, When I look up in the sky, I don't see too many that look green. Why do these appear green to you? Well, we've designed our telescope so it'll actually
6: appear green and they pop out relative to the other stars. And the telescope I'm talking about is something called the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, and it's a satellite that circles the Earth. And we've designed it so that the methane absorption bands in the spectrum of the star itself, and the methane makes it look a lot like a planet because it's very, very cold, will pop out in these filters so that only one of the filters actually shows any flux and the other filters don't. It just turns out that that middle filter, the one you usually color as green in a red, green, and blue image is the only one that shows up. So when you make a three-color image from these individual images from the telescope, you see something that pops out as a green star.
2: How many of these green stars have you found?
6: So far, we've found several dozen, which we think are cooler based on their spectral appearance from the objects that we found earlier in other
2: surveys. Several dozen, and if you were to translate that into, say, a percentage of all stars, are these sort of rare beasts, or are they commonplace?
6: Well, that's one of the very questions we're trying to explore with the Widefield Infrared Survey Explorer. And we think so far that it could be that these very cold brown dwarfs are as common, perhaps, as normal stars themselves. But we're still trying to get to the bottom of that answer.
2: So these could conceivably be the representative of the majority of all stars or a slim majority or something like that. I mean, these are not rare things. That's exactly right. Yep. Okay, so it sounds like we ought to know more about them. Now, you mentioned that they have peculiar atmospheres with methane in their atmosphere. There's no methane in the atmosphere of the sun. It's too hot for methane. So these are cool stars. These are very cold stars, that's right. How cold is cold?
6: The warmest of these is something around uh, 2,500 Kelvin, so it's pretty warm by the standards of planets. But they go down to, we think, uh, objects as cold as the planets in our own solar system, say Jupiter or Saturn, something like that, which are only about 100 Kelvin.
2: So it's it's cold. Is it also a small star or is it a big star?
6: It turns out these are all about the same size physically, so they all have about the radius of Jupiter. So they all have about the same size as a giant planet, but their masses are a broad swath, going from about 80 times the mass of Jupiter down to perhaps even lower
2: in mass than Jupiter itself. So it sounds to me like these so-called green stars, and I keep using that term, but that these dwarf stars aren't all that different from a big planet. I mean, are they really different? Why do you even call them a star? Yeah, the reason we have different
6: definitions, at least in in my take on it, and if you ask a different astronomer, they may give you a different answer to that question, is that it has to do with the way they formed. So in my mind, a brown dwarf is something that collapsed out of a prenatal cloud of gas and dust, just like a star did. But unfortunately, it doesn't have enough mass to ignite the thermonuclear fusion for millions of years or billions of years, like a normal star does whereas a planet actually forms in a disk that collapses around one of those preformed stars. And it's sort of a different creation process in that there's a conglomeration process that happens around a central core, and you get differentiation of chemical elements and things like that to form the planet. So it's a difference in how they formed, but maybe you couldn't tell a difference if you flew a spacecraft up to one and tried to figure out what it was later.
2: So these have a different uh, pedigree, a different birth process, but in fact, uh, a a small green dwarf and a big planet might look the same if you had them, you know, in your bedroom as part of a collection. That's quite possible, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you, uh, could a a star that's this dim, you say that they're only a few thousand degrees, which, after all, is a lot hotter than my oven at home, but I suppose for a star, that's not very much. If they had planets, could any of those planets be warm enough to support life?
6: Um, I think it's possible, and I also like to think that life is more resilient than we give it credit for, and that if there happens to be a planetary system around one of these objects, one of these brown dwarfs, and we're already seeing evidence that they do form planetary systems around them because we see very young ones with disks uh, in their midst, it's quite possible that there's a cold environment around one of these uh, brown dwarfs that just has the right you know, chemical soup to create life.
2: How far away were these uh, green dwarfs?
6: That's something we're also trying to discern, and just based on some of the ones that have been found earlier from ground-based surveys, we think that these are probably on the order of a dozen or so light years or closer, the ones that we're finding so far.
2: That, that's not very far. Could there be any even closer than that? Because, I mean, the closest star that everybody thinks about, the one that we think is the closest to us, Alpha Centauri is, what, four and a half light years. Could there be a green dwarf even closer than that that we somehow missed? It's possible. In fact, what
6: we've been saying all along with the WISE telescope is that if brown dwarfs are as numerous as stars, there's at least a 50-50 chance there's one closer than Proxima Centauri, which of course is the faint red dwarf companion to the Alpha Centauri system, which is the closest one to the sun. And we're hoping to find such an object.
2: This sounds a bit like, you know, wandering through the savannas of Africa, where you see all the megafauna, you know, the, the, the tigers, the lions, if they have tigers, the elephants, whatever. <laughs> but you don't notice all the field mice underneath your feet, and they're by far more numerous than these megafauna. What you're telling me is that the star charts that I have at home, are missing at least half of all the stars they should have on them.
6: Yeah, some of our nearest neighbors are probably ones we haven't met yet, which is astounding to me that we've been doing astronomy for as long as we have, and we may be missing half the stars in our solar neighborhood.
2: So it could be that this telescope, this wise telescope, has wised us up to the most common stellar constituent Of the universe. That's correct. Yes, absolutely. It sounds like interesting work. Yeah, we think it is, certainly. (laughs) Davy Kirkpatrick, thank you very much for talking with me. Okay, thank you very much.
3: Davy Kirkpatrick is an astronomer at Caltech where he works on NASA's WISE mission, the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer Telescope. So, Seth, speaking of stars, and this show really is star-packed, I want an autograph, yes. Okay. Uh, Some stars, it sounds like, shine due to nuclear power, but others don't. Right. And for the ones that do, this is sort of how it works. The temperature in the
2: interior of these stars, in the Sun, for example, are a toasty 10 million degrees. Now, the hydrogen in that central core is under enormous pressure due to the weight of the entire star above it. Because it's so hot, the hydrogen atoms—and really, at those temperatures, the electrons are all stripped away, so hydrogen really just means a a hydrogen nucleus, a proton— those protons are zipping around like headless chickens, so they're moving at incredible speeds. Well, when that happens, you really do get collisions. And when they hit, they can stick together. They can fuse. And what's produced?
3: Well, you get two protons bonded together, better known as helium. So hydrogen becomes helium.
2: Exactly. Which is maybe nice for the party balloon industry. But an important point is that the helium weighs a little bit less than the two hydrogen nuclei that produced it. Yep. There's less matter
3: there than there was before. So where did that mass go? Well, it was turned into energy, energy that eventually makes its way to the surface of the sun, gets radiated into space, and eventually lights up our backyards in something known as a sunny day.
2: Right. And so, what they're trying to do at Lawrence Livermore's National Ignition Facility, or NIF, is to use giant lasers to create those temperatures and pressures and recreate the center of the sun.
3: So, Seth, you went to visit the NIF. What was it like?
2: Well, it was impressive, Molly. It's just incredibly impressive. This is really big science. To begin with, I was given a tour, and the building itself is the size of a stadium. uh, We wander through these big hallways, not too many people to be seen. I mean, it's mostly automated, heavy steel doors, doors that are a foot thick to protect you from the neutrons that might be given uh, loose during the experiments big elevators, industrial size elevators. Every time you got in, and these clunky doors would open and close giant gates, and there would be a bell ringing and so forth. And was it underground,
3: or is it above ground? No, it's all above ground. Mm-hmm.
2: It, it, it's just, a, a, you know, an impressive building, but you wouldn't know what it was just by looking at it.
3: And all of this to house these lasers, is that right?
2: Exactly. That's really what this is. It, I mean, the whole facility is if you will, just a giant container for these lasers. There were dozens and dozens, 100 yards long, each one more powerful than any other laser anywhere else in the world. And they're all aimed via these very complicated optical paths down onto one little tiny BB-sized bit of material containing hydrogen. And the idea is to fuse that hydrogen? Exactly. With all this energy aimed at that little pellet of hydrogen-containing material, it causes it to implode, causes it to get very hot, very high pressure, and diffuse. As Mike Dunn, who's a physicist that works there, explained it to me, we're just trying to Create the center of the sun right here on Earth. Mike, this is the National Ignition Facility, but you're not trying to, you know, start a
7: a bonfire or a barbecue. What are you trying to ignite here? So we're trying to ignite fusion fuel in the same kind of way that the sun and all the stars ignite hydrogen into helium and give off lots of energy. So you're trying to do what stars do. You're trying to simulate the energy production of a star. Exactly so, and do it in a controllable way, and of course in a safe way here in the laboratory, as a route to studying a lot of interesting science, but maybe more importantly as a route to getting out power for the national grid, for electricity. So this has long-term practical applications if you can do it. It really does, and you know people have recognized this since the birth of the laser 50 years ago, that you could use these lasers potentially to get out an awful amount of power, gigawatts of power, and use that rather than coal-fired power stations or nuclear power plants for clean, abundant, safe energy. Mike, maybe you could just explain to me then, how does fusion power work? How, how does the Sun really produce its energy? I mean, you know, 150 years ago they thought it was just a big round ball of coal. Right, right. So, so the way it works is, uh, in the case of the Sun, is that the gravity of all of that mass in the in the same place acts to pull together one atom closer and closer to its neighboring atom until The temperature gets so high, the density gets so high, those atoms get so close together that one atom bonds into its neighbour. Two hydrogen atoms bond together to form helium, and in that process you actually get an infinitesimal change in mass. hydrogen atoms, two of them weigh just a little bit more than a helium atom. And so according to Einstein, that very famous equation equals mc squared, you get a lot of energy out. Well, okay, so the purpose here is to produce energy, but
2: doggone it, we've got coal, we've got oil, we've got natural gas. Uh, What's in it for me to do it
7: via fusion? Yeah, I think there's a few answers to that question. One is that we know there's a very significant potential impact on our planet through emitting carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. It's a very dangerous experiment we could potentially be playing with our planet if we just use fossil fuels. The other is that these fossil fuels will not last forever. So we need to find alternatives for how do we supply baseload electricity at the gigawatt scale per city in order to power our needs. Well, maybe you could explain what it takes to fuse these hydrogen- atoms or these hydrogen nuclei
2: to fuse them into helium. I mean, what do you use the laser for? What are the conditions you need to have so that a little bit of hydrogen, which after all, I can—it's hydrogen all over the place,
7: that that hydrogen will fuse. What does it take to make it fuse? So it really is bringing star power to Earth. You, you have to create a miniature sun, very miniature, of course. A ball-bearing-sized uh, pellet of fuel is used and create the very high temperatures, very high pressures that you find in the center of the sun. So this is where the laser comes in. A laser is a way of compressing energy in space by focusing it down, and compressing energy in time to incredibly short uh, periods of time. The laser around us now doesn't have much energy, but it compresses that energy into a few billionths of a second. So it has a power that's maybe a thousand times the power of the entire U.S. national grid. A few hundred terawatts of power in this facility that get focused down, and you can imagine stuff gets hot when you focus that kind of power down. It gets so hot, you mimic the kind of conditions you get in the center of the sun. What kind of temperatures are we talking about when you fire that laser onto that little pellet of fuel? Well, you're talking millions or even tens of millions of degrees, and when fusion happens, when you actually initiate that fusion, you're getting hundreds of millions of degrees. So it actually gets hotter than the center of the sun. Something that's hundreds of millions of degrees in temperature, I mean, how do you contain something like that? It sounds to me like any box you put it in would instantly melt it would indeed and and so herein lies uh, the issue there are two ways of approaching fusion one is trying to create a magnetic bottle rather than just a normal canister to hold fusion fuel and that that's a project that's underway in the south of France called ITER. the other is not to contain this fuel at all but just let it disassemble through its own heat but using a very tiny amount at a time and just like in your car engine repeat the cycle again and again and again inject a little bit of fuel compress it to very high temperatures, let it give off its energy, exhaust, and then repeat again and again and again. And just like in your car engine, if you do it at about 900 RPM, you can get a gigawatt scale of electricity out. So this is, of course, a research facility. This is not a power plant, okay? When will power plants actually be built? So fusion's always 50 years away and always will be, goes the joke, yeah. So, so we're now at a point where the, you know the science of fusion, the, actually proving that it works here in the lab, is perhaps not 50 years away anymore, but a year away, maybe two years at the very most, we believe. And so the objective now is how do you harness that energy and put it into an operational power plant? So I I run a project called LIFE, Laser Inertial Fusion Energy, that's looking to achieve exactly that. How long will it take will, of course, clearly depend on political will and money, but we believe from a technology point of view, from a science and industrial point of view, probably take no more than 10 years. Atomic energy has the problem of nuclear waste. What, what about waste for fusion? So there is waste. The most um, challenging waste is the waste associated with any big power plant, and that's heat. You, know, you go to a coal-fired power plant or a nuclear power plant, uh, and you get perhaps half the amount of energy you generate you have to dissipate as heat through a cooling tower or into the ocean, and that can have uh, effect on the local environment. The byproduct of fusion itself is helium, Now helium is is an inert material, there's no issue directly there, so there's no nuclear waste as there is when you split the atom in uranium. But you also do get some activation of the infrastructure around the fusion plant, so the steel and concrete that, that sits around the plant. So at the end of the power plant's life, when you're decommissioning it, you have to spend a few decades, but it is just a few decades, not tens of thousands of years, so compared to fission, this is a much cleaner
2: process. Uh, what about the fuel? For fission, you need to spin around the isotopes of uranium, which are, you have to be dug out of the ground, and they're expensive, and it's a complicated process. What's the fuel for fusion
7: here? So it comes in two forms. One part is so-called heavy hydrogen, deuterium, and about one part in 7,000 of seawater turns out to be deuterium. And so you can extract that. The technology for extracting deuterium from seawater has been around for 60 years or so. The other component actually doesn't exist naturally. It's called super-heavy hydrogen, or tritium. And so you have to make that. And this is where the, the beauty of fusion comes in on itself. You make that other part of the fusion fuel in the fusion power plant itself. What do you make it from initially? You make it from lithium. Now lithium is a very abundant material found around the world in the Earth's crust. So we won't be fighting over the fuel for our future energy needs. I think that's one of the very compelling arguments. One of the reasons we've been spending 50 years and many billions of dollars pursuing fusion is that it's, it's safe, it's inherently clean, and it has these geopolitical benefits in terms of the fuel source and lack of enrichment and reprocessing. Mike Dunn, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you.
3: Mike Dunn is the Programme Director for Fusion Energy at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. And that's it for our show. Thanks to, and you know I'm going to say it, our stars, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Keith Rosendahl.
2: Also support from Rena Sholsky, david and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, also our listeners. If you like what you heard, or if you didn't, you don't have to take it. Register your comments on Are We a Blog on our website or our Facebook page.
3: Okay, Seth, I think I'm ready to get something to eat and want to get out of here.
2: It sounds like a good idea. Molly, I know this great fusion restaurant.
3: I don't think I have the energy for that.
4: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at BeatTheStigma.org.
1: The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's what's new with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.